everyone. Welcome to another episode of Credit Union's Coffee and Conversation. This is Patty. Thanks so much for joining me. Um, excited about our episode today. Um, we had a little bit different approach with this guest. Um, it was really topic specific in the indirect lending space, auto lending space. So I was really excited to welcome um, my friend, Jeremy Einbrecht. Jeremy is the president and CEO of CRIF um, that provides indirect lending support and services and a whole host of things um, to credit unions around the country and actually around the world, as Jeremy tells us. Um, So full disclosure, um, we partnership with CRIF and they're one of the vendors that we do promote um, to our Michigan credit unions. Heard a lot of great things about them. You'll see Jeremy and his team out and about at some of our events as sponsors, but we didn't get into any sort of sales pitch. Um, uh, Jeremy really just has a lot of industry expertise being in the industry for as long as he had. and, And certainly especially over the last few years, a lot's been happening in auto lending when we're talking about liquidity issues and now seeing delinquencies rise a little bit, inventory issues, um, all of those things um, Jeremy and I dig into. But we also talk about, you know, this issue of, you know, how do we cross sell to members with indirect lending? You know, that's something we hear about all the time, you know, yeah, you can have a car loan, but how do you bring some members in to get a credit card or some other things? So Jeremy and I talk about that. Also curious to hear from Jeremy where he sees um, indirect lending evolving. You know, what's changed um, in his years in the industry, especially in the technology space, the digital space. Um, We talk about lenders and electronic vehicles and and what to look at there and and some of the things that credit unions are concerned about with EVs, you know, valuations, and um, but also looking at lower delinquency on the EV product. So definitely hit on that and all sorts of issues you know, in the auto lending space. Um, So I really appreciate Jeremy's time sharing his interests and expertise um, in this space. Um, So I think you'll all really um, walk away learning something that you didn't know um, in indirect auto lending. So please enjoy my episode with Jeremy. Hey, Jeremy, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. Hey, thanks for inviting me. I sure appreciate it, Patty. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. You know, we haven't really had a discussion with anyone um, strictly on, you know, auto lending. So I thought it would be really great for the people that listen to kind of hear from someone like yourself that's been in the industry for a long time, especially in the indirect side. And, you know, the vast majority of our credit unions um, have an indirect lending program and have been navigating this crazy waters of inventory and liquidity and all of those crazy things in the auto space. So I thought it'd be fun to dig into some of that. So happy to have you here, Jeremy. But, you know, before we get started, I don't know if you've listened to any of our podcasts, but um, typically um, just as way of introduction, I ask people to kind of tell us their story. So if you're down with that, Jeremy, and you want to share some of your story, I'd love to hear it. Absolutely. So um, I've been in the auto industry, Patty, for uh, my whole career. Um, I started as an executive intern in the state of South Dakota uh, for the governor in fleet management and then um, did some, you know, I don't, I don't think anybody actually decides they're going to be in the automotive industry unless their, their parents own a dealership, things of that nature, it seems yeah. like, or, or you live in one of the big uh, Detroit um, or somewhere like that. But um, really enjoyed it uh, from that standpoint, uh, worked for a rental car company. Um, and then I managed auto auctions all around the country. So I have four children all born in different states, moved around a lot with it. 
Uh, and then joined CRIF around 13 years ago on the auto finance side, specifically uh, dealing with credit unions and auto dealers and how to how to uh, have them work closer and, and better together. So it's been a it's been a fun, uh, it's a great industry. Lovely working with dealers. They're they're type A. They're great for the community um, as well as lenders as well. And so it's been a it's been a fun ride. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, you know, you mentioned really quick, and this is kind of off topic, but I was having this discussion with somebody the other day, and, and you mentioned you worked um, in the in the car rental business. And people, you know, the more people I talk to just lately, uh, and I don't know how long it's been, the cost of renting a car is like insane. And um, I was just talking to my brother about this the other day. From what I heard, and I don't know if this is true, you know, it seemed like a lot of the, because they can get so much for their inventory, a lot of these um, car rental places sold like some of their cars just to, and, and so their inventory of cars is low. And I mean, do you have any idea why it's now so costly to rent cars? Any, any thoughts? <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. Well, if you think about it, the fleet sales kind of went away during COVID with the shortage of inventory. So the manufacturers are always going to support their dealerships first yeah. um, that retail the vehicles. And that's honestly where the more money is made as well. Okay. Um, and so when they when that happened, the fleet sales, meaning the OEM to the rental car companies, became extremely difficult to get inventory. Oh. Now the good news for them were the inventory that they had was extremely valuable, but they like to get rid of those and turn those with low mileage things of that nature, so they bring all the value. So they've been through a lot in the last couple of years, and because of that, they're very careful on having that inventory, which is extremely expensive to keep because they could actually make more money in selling them. So they're rent, they're raising the rates for that reason. Yeah, it just seems to me, that makes sense. It just seems to me like if you're in the business of renting cars, you know, and then you sell a lot of your inventory, so you don't have a lot of cars to rent. I mean, you're pissing a lot of people off. I mean, I heard somebody <laughs> that had to wait three and a half hours at some Orlando airport for her car because the SUV that she requested and needed to fit her family and all their luggage wasn't there. So she had to sit there for three and a half. I mean, I don't know, from a customer standpoint, it, it just seems like a really tough situation, If especially if there, it's not just a matter of inventory you know, from the manufacturers, it's kind of the decision they made to sell some because it was more lucrative. I don't know. It just can kind of annoy a lot of people. And I know there's some alternatives now with some of those apps and the names are escaping me where you can rent a car, you know, um, I, do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, yeah, so you can actually, it's very big in Europe. You actually can you look in the street, there's a car sitting there, you have an app, you can all open the car and you can drive it from yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. Or people are like renting out their cars like Airbnb. Um, yep. So I, I love how, you know, just commercialism and people just come up with alternatives when things get like that. And, um, you know, and what a great way to make money off your car, I guess. It just seems kind of smart. I've never done it. Have you tried it? I have not. I've not. Yeah. I've actually seen people do it, though, when I was actually in Europe uh, recently. Um, and I watched them actually get on the app, unlock the vehicle, and then drive away, and they rent it by the by the hour, basically. So it's pretty yeah, cool. That's interesting. Uh, as long as you don't get, I guess it's the same thing. Like if you rent a house that of somebody that doesn't keep it clean, the same thing could apply with a car. <laughs> For <laughs> no. sure. Anyway, so let's get more in into the subject at hand. I guess you know, um, if 
I'm sure if I had talked to you at various times over the last like two and a half years, your answers might be like completely different as you navigate the waves of everything that's happening. Um, But let's just talk, I guess, present time, you know, with credit unions um, that you work with and that you that you read about in the industry, you know, I know they they struggled, of course, with with inventory and and everything else. But now, you know, what we hear from a lot of credit unions is is they don't have a lot of money to lend out. So sometimes, you know, a way to kind of slow that down is in the auto lending space and and kind of slowing it down um, just as a matter of necessity. Is is that what you're seeing or or what are some of your credit unions that you work around the country? um, how, How are they navigating this liquidity crunch? For sure, Patty. I mean, liquidity is the number one thing that we talk about right now with our credit unions. Uh, there's cars are still selling, so if if credit unions want auto loans, they can turn it on and they can get auto loans. That's the good part. Right. Um, we have some credit unions that really focus on automotive lending, which is their main source of bringing in new members. Right. Um, and it's their main lending and for revenue purposes as well. You know, as you know, the credit unions really grew a lot in terms of market share. Um, you know, when the rates started to raise, they were slower to raise those rates. Um, and some are paying for that now a little bit. Um, others have been able to, you know, bring on new members and look at it as a, a marketing tool, if you will, and cross sell those members to other products. Um, but yeah, liquidity definitely is a big thing. Um, a lot of CFOs of credit unions are looking at which uh, products to lend. Um, and indirect auto is one that is very, you can grow a membership base, you can grow your, you know, a lot of things at the credit union, but the, um, in terms of the profitability can be um, lower in some terms than other products. So that's a lot what the topics are that we're talking with credit unions on. Yeah, for sure. So one of the things you mentioned, Jeremy, um, and I'm curious what what you see with credit unions is, is I've heard differing opinions on, you know, indirect lending and being able to, you know, of course you add members through the loan, but cross-selling, you know, it seems like some credit unions have more success with that than others. So meaning that, you know, when you land a new member for an auto loan and you send them a welcome packet and try and get a credit card or a mortgage or, you know, an unsecured loan, you know, um, some seem to do well with it. Some say it's it's a misnomer and and you're really just going to be a one and done. What what do you see from credit unions? You know, what 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 works for credit unions and that are more successful in kind of building that membership experience and, and cross-selling to those members? Sure, Patty. It's a huge, it's, a, it's the million dollar question, if you yeah. will. For <laughs> What's the secret, Jeremy? <laughs> <laughs> so we see both. We see um, some, first of all, when you go to buy a vehicle, uh, the way that the paperwork works and everything else, a lot of the time, the the new member, if you will, doesn't even know which financial institution yeah. they're signing with. So a big tool to success for Cragens that are successful with cross-selling is once they're onboarded, making sure that there's a welcome, either that they be through digital uh, media, whether that be through a welcome call, thanking them for becoming a member of the credit union, and then making it seamless for those individuals from a digital perspective to, to uh, show them their other products with a click of a button um, and, and showing them the value, how much you could save them, for instance, for a month if they wanted to refinance their other autos that they have that we can, they could see on the credit bureau, the credit union can. Um, so twofold, it's creating value in your institution by explaining to them what you do, what a credit union is, um, mm-hmm. uh, what they all do in the community, things of that nature, and then making the 
the signing up of the new products uh, seamless from a digital perspective and making it easy for them to do business with them. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's important. And, you know, it's, it's a great idea, you know, and like I said, you know, hopefully there's, is that something that Criff, you know, do you support credit unions like that? Do you kind of give them tips or suggestions on, on how to be better at building that um, membership relationship? We do. We actually have an advisory committee of some of our top credit unions that that meets um, annually. That's one of the main topics every single year. And they, yeah. you know, best practices and how to do that. Some of them do it somewhat manually, uh, Patty, where they actually every single deal that comes through, they look at it, they look at the bureau. Hey, this person is is got uh, maybe three other um, uh, loans out at a higher rate than I can, you know, uh, give them today. I can lower their rate, and they right. do it. They take some of their best salespeople and they talk to those uh, new members. Um, and about products and, and how they can deliver those. Um, it's definitely something that CRIF uh, specifically is working on uh, for the near to distant future and how to make that seamless from a digital perspective for the other products, such as credit cards, um, yeah. their other direct autos, all those kind of things. Yeah. That's cool. So what, I mean, I know, Jeremy, you said you've been in the industry for, for quite some time and in different facets and been with CRIF, I think since 2010, right? Yep. Um, so what are you seeing in terms of technology and, and auto lending? You know, how has that evolved from when you started till now? First off, digital. So um, we were very, it's still a very paper heavy business. Uh, dealerships have forms that are state county driven that they've got to do and they've got the old dot matrix printer still <laughs> in the office but what's happened is on um, from some of our partners such as dealer tracker route one there's been you know the e-contracting has been around for a lot of years now they're figuring out ways to partner with you know uh, companies like us to digitize the other documents um, so even though they may use a dot matrix printer in the in the business office, we now um, you know use OCR technology, uh, document recognition technology to digitize that in order to speed up the process um, and less FedEx and UPS and in quicker timetable in terms of getting their funding needed. Consumers um, are very much uh, shopping for their vehicles, obviously online before they ever walk into a dealership. The trick has been on the financing side, to be honest with you. They can look at the options of the vehicles. They can kind of tell if they've had that uh, uh, make before, you know, Chevy Tahoe before. They can kind of tell what it's going to be like. They still want that consumer to come in and drive the vehicle, um, understand what it's like, specifically on a new vehicle. Um, but there's also been some disruptors in the industry, like Carvana on the used yeah. side, uh, that's trying to digitize the whole process and deliver it to your home. Right. Um, which has had some success for sure during COVID during that in terms of number of vehicles sold. So there's been huge changes um, that I've seen over the last, you know, 15 years. The trick, the, the, the biggest thing has been on the financing side, to be honest with you. How do we do this? And being able to, the dealerships don't want to lose their identity. They don't want to become a quote unquote Walmart, if you will. Yeah. They want to talk to their, their customers. Um, they want to show them how they're different and they want to add value just like everyone else. So how do you do that? But, but be more digital. That's what they're trying to figure out. And it's getting better. You see dealerships that are being very progressive, being extremely successful with cross state line sales, uh, all those kind of things. Yeah, that was actually on my list, you know, to talk a little bit about the disruptors like Carvana, 
you know, uh, as you, you know, kind of pull out a crystal ball, if you will, what do you, I mean, what, it's kind of like we talk about credit unions and branching, right? What's the future of branching for credit unions, you know, as people do things more online, you know, it's, it's kind of the same thing. If you think about dealerships, you know, what is the future for them? You know, 10, 20, 30 years down the road, are, are people going to gravitate more towards, you know, a Carvana? And is that something that dealerships are going to have to start doing? And do, are they doing that already? Are they trying to mimic what Carvana does for their customers? Yeah, well, so Patty, we're a global company and we deal and we're a credit bureau and most we have 40 different countries where we have brick and mortar and then credit bureaus. So we see a lot of dealerships in other countries, like Europe, for instance, where the OEMs are doing direct to consumer. So um, they've been doing that for years. Um, The United States different because dealers have power and and that's a good thing in a lot of respect. Um, and they want to control and they have you know laws that help them as well to control how that vehicle is sold in those states. Um, however, with the Carvanas of the world and different companies, they're seeing value in certain niches. Um, for instance, um, I know Ford was trying it with electric EVs and trying to do more direct to consumer. The dealer's still involved, but it's more of a, a handoff, if you will. So right. we're seeing people trying it. Um, I think the um, inevitably the dealers need to change how they're doing business without losing, like I said earlier, that the uniqueness uh, of what they're doing. So biggest thing is, uh, Patty, I don't know about a vehicle lately, but it still takes sometimes two to three hours when you go to the dealership from the time you get in there to you know drive away in the vehicle. That's been shortening. Uh, a lot of that's because a lot of the things can be done now beforehand or digitally, which just speeds up the whole process. That's very important on the uh, customer service side. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't, I haven't talked to anyone who likes buying a car. <laughs> no, <laughs> True. <laughs> no one does. Well, being, I, being in the industry, um, you know, obviously I have more relatives than I knew that I had when it comes to buying cars. <laughs> and uh, every one of them, please, can I just go drive the car away? I'll do, can you handle everything <laughs> else with the dealer? And so, yeah, I understand what you're saying. I know. And they're building like these really nice showrooms and they make it very comfortable to sit and wait your two or three hours, but it's like, it's painful. And yeah, I, I think there, there's definitely some work that, that can be done there. Um, and, and by a dealers, you know, um, I agree, but you know, I, I think for me, I don't know. I just, I hesitate to, I want to test drive a car, you know, and I often want to go test drive a few different ones while I'm there, you know? So to me, I'm not sure I'm the Carvana ish type person, but I don't know. It's, it's interesting. It's, it's like anything else. It's, it's really changing. What about EVs? I mean, is there anything different that electronic vehicles cause in the indirect lending space? Or is that pretty much, you know, any, anything happening there as far as uh, anything different? Sure. Well, um, I own three electronic vehicles, so this hits yeah. home with me, and I can tell you my experience directly. Um, the On the indirect space, of course, when the EVs just came out, um, the manufacturers are putting big incentives towards leasing them, things of that nature, and I did that with two of my EVs. Um, and then I bought another uh, EV for my wife, and that one I financed with the credit union uh, because of, you know the low rate and, and, and what I do, and I believe yeah. in credit unions. And two months after financing that, the government puts out a $7,500 rebate for that same vehicle, okay? So there's two things that are really in the minds of lenders today when financing EVs. 
Um, the first thing is valuations. So if, you know, Tesla, for instance, just lowered their price because of the affordability, um, because of rising rates and the economy, things of that nature. Well, the minute they do that, they just devalued used vehicles that are in the same make and model, right? Mm. So that's a concern. Um, it's no longer, I don't believe, a concern on the vehicles, um, you know, being able to stand the test of time. They've been doing very, very well. Um, the second thing is to keep in mind is that EV people that have, have purchased EV vehicles and financed them, the delinquency is basically next to zero. Yeah. And so they can have some confidence in the type of buyers that they're they're getting today. But that whole pricing thing and and, and where that's going to level is, is really important for lenders to understand what not that vehicle's worth today, but what it's worth six months, 12 months, two years from now. Yeah, absolutely. So as far as the charging unit, I just out of curiosity, I mean, how does that, is that something that the dealer, you, you purchase from the dealer, do the credit unions finance chargers? How does that work? Do you know? I'm not aware of any Craigans financing chargers today. Okay. It's a very good point. We did that. I had a round table that I was at at a at an auto finance summit, and this was brought up. Um, some of the manufacturers um, are giving points, for instance. Uh, General Motors gives uh, points when you buy a vehicle. Those points then can be used for things like floor mats, whatever. It can also be used for the EV charger. Okay. Um, the good news is many homes now, even in my area here, it's required that the, that the the most expensive part is actually not the charger, but the the mm-hmm. line to that charger in terms of the hookup from an electronic standpoint. Um, and they're putting those in as a as a regular base on all new homes now, so that's good. But that's a it's, it was a question that was brought up, and no one really had an answer at the table, which we had banks um, and captive lenders as well as credit unions at that table. So mm-hmm. that's a good point, and something that if if a credit union wanted to maybe have a little bit of different program um, that's yeah. offered today, that's a great one because that can be pretty expensive. Yeah, I guess it depends, right? Because there's two different kinds. I mean, you can get the yep. one that you can charge overnight, which my understanding is is you don't need to go crazy with with any sort of setup in your garage for that one. But if you want like one of the supercharger ones, it's a whole nother ball game, you know. From yeah. What I- yeah. I, I know I, I've not okay. heard many level one chargers in homes yet. We have like for instance, we have a level two charger, which is about three hours to charge a vehicle. Oh, which okay. Is, which is pretty good. Yeah, that is good. Yeah. Um yeah, that's interesting. I know that um that's kind of top of mind for credit unions as they're kind of navigating that whole process. And then, you know, what about kind of another totally jumping issues, but I, I, I'm old. So if I, if I wait to ask things in order, I'll forget. To <laughs> um, you know, one of the things we're seeing here in Michigan um, and legislation that we're kind of keeping an eye on are these subscriptions, right? Like they're looking to add you know, different sort of subscriptions, you know, manufacturers are to vehicles. So whether it be for, for radio or for other technology that you can get in cars, they're not just the car, but then you got to pay per month for these add-on features, like in a subscription, they're calling it. Are you familiar with that at all? Or I am. In fact, globally, there's been a lot of OEMs that have been doing that for a while. Um, There's one manufacturer that you buy the car and then actually Criff is helping with some of the payment features of this where you can choose if you want to add, just like you do today on XM radio, but you can choose a higher horsepower. You can choose different options. Once you buy the vehicle, it's kind of like an Amazon inside on the screen of what you want to pay for and win. So the vehicle has the options available to it already, but you have to turn them on and you pay for those as when you need them. 
Okay. Very interesting. Interesting. And that is crazy. There's so there's so much. <laughs> there's so much happening. You got to keep on top of this stuff. I know there's a lot. Um, so what about, you know, one of the things that you know we talk about with our credit unions as as their members are navigating, you know, the economy, certainly with interest rates and just, you know, inflation. And then you think about the average price of a car now. I just read the other day is forty six thousand mm-hmm. dollars, which is insanity to me. Um, you know, what are you seeing, you know, our, our credit unions, do you get some feedback from, from your credit unions that you work with on, on how their members are navigating just the cost of cars? Yeah. I mean, interest rates don't affect people's credit negatively directly. Right. But yet right. you have the affordability issue um, right. with cars being no, normally your second highest purchase of anything that you do next to your homes. Um, there's an issue and people need to decide where they want to spend their money. Um, and the, you know, the debt to income ratios, all those things come into play. That's a lot of counseling going on. I know with members, when they get to talk to them about, um, items as such as these big purchases and, and what they're, you know, looking to do, you see a lot of consumer experts out there as well saying, you know, be careful on how much your car payment is every month. And, and yeah. if you can't finance it in 48 months, then you shouldn't be doing it. I mean, you hear a little bit of everything. Yeah. Uh, but the one nice thing is that credit unions in general do have longer terms to help navigate this, especially when the car's values have been holding so well, you know, an 84 month term, and there's even been 92, um, Patty, yeah. um, month terms, uh, they've been able to have affordability that can make that monthly payment. And they're not upside down so bad as you would be before when you did that long of a term of a loan. But it's it's top of mind, no doubt, um, with the interest rates being where they are. And yeah. you know, in my lifetime, they, they were so low for so long. But I remember the interest rates used to be higher than this. But it's just kind of it's taken some you know people some time to adjust to it and understand where they're spending their money. And it's really I think Craigans can do a great job of that counseling side of that and make sure they're making the right decisions. Yeah, absolutely. So um, with that kind of mindset too, you know what. Uh, you know, I know I hear some credit unions are looking into leasing. Is that mm-hmm. something you're hearing? And Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, in fact, we have some credit unions that have been very successful with leasing. Yeah. Um, you know, leasing um, is, is done very well in terms of the balance sheet. It's also done well in terms of how long that um, lease stays on their books. It's actually longer than a regular retail auto loan. Um, and so, and then the credit quality, I just saw, uh, just, actually just this morning, the average lease uh, credit score is 741 nationally as well. So um, a lot of A plus credit, things of that nature. And if you're not in leasing, you're missing out on 20 to 25% of all the new cars sold. You don't even have a piece of that. So yeah. it also, um, dealers look for lenders that can be either full spectrum or have different options with. It can lower, obviously, leasing is there to lower payments when the affordability, and you said before, the prices of vehicles are are unbelievable compared to what they were a few years back. I mean, an average pickup truck now, that's becoming a big issue is, oh. is a, a, reg, a regular one, not loaded, but a regular pickup truck seems $55,000, $60,000 a piece. So for even, um, you know, people that own painting companies, people that own, you know, small entrepreneurs, it's becoming an issue in how much those vehicles are. So leasing is a good option whether that be a closed end or an open end leasing. The good news is we've got some great partners in the credit union industry that help credit unions navigate through that leasing side. 
Yeah, for sure. Exactly. And yeah, that's interesting. I know, you know, some credit agents have been afraid to get involved in that. There's been some issues with it in the past, but I think you're right. There's a lot of good folks out there that are, are willing to work with credit unions in that. Um, and it's a good option, especially when the price of the cars are so expensive. Yes. Um, so, you know, kind of touching on delinquencies a little bit, you know, in the environment now, we're starting to hear that, you know, folks that used to pay their credit cards off each month, we're now seeing that they're carrying over balances, things are getting a little tighter for um, members, you know, what are you hearing from your credit unions in the auto space? Are they starting to see some delinquencies rise? And, and what, what are you, what are you seeing in that space? Very much. Um, yeah. And this is something that when they say rise, they're now to pre-pandemic. Levels. Right. So right. the levels went so far down during the pandemic um, and were so low. Now we're seeing it, but now actually this last quarter, they're up over the pre-pandemic levels, what they were in 2019 and 2020. Um, mm-hmm. Specifically with used cars, Patty. Um, new cars are still performing pretty well in the 60-month delinquencies. Used cars are, have, have went up. And again, franchise dealer versus independent dealer, is a big, um, there's a big uh, difference there too. Um, so I think it's very important to have the things in place as a lender uh, when that happens, how to contact those those members to either get them back on on board or to take care of the vehicle disposition, all those kind of things, or to have insurance-based products that help you during those times, which we partner with some of those. So I think delinquency is always going to be there, as we know. Yeah. It's managing it and pricing accordingly when that does happen and having the things in place operationally to assist. Yeah. So you mentioned franchise versus independent dealer. What what can you explain why you brought that up? Sure. There's a difference in when a used. Let's just talk about used car financing. Yeah. Um, used car financing when a when a franchise dealer the delinquency let's say is is 079 percent. Uh, with a independent dealer, it's one point seven five percent. Okay. And that's just a, from a risk adverse standpoint. Now that could be that they're doing more business with more credit challenged individuals or more subprime that can be the case, but in general, the, the, the breakout is, is fairly normal. Okay. Got it. So just kind of talking more, a little bit more generally about indirect lending, you know, um, most credit unions that that in, are in Michigan anyway, and I think around the country recognize that they have to get on some sort of indirect lending. I mean, there's definitely some out there that are still, hesitant, you know, some of our smaller, medium-sized credit unions aren't really involved, but as they're kind of contemplating it, or maybe if people have just started out in their indirect lending relationships, you know, in your experience, Jeremy, kind of what does a good indirect lending program look like? Like, what do you think the (laughs) (laughs) must-haves? Should have. (laughs) Yeah, I think, um, there's been, a, by the way, there's been a lot of lenders, credit unions specifically, um, that have entered the market just because they see the the value, their membership experience, those kinds of things. Yeah. So when a lender has not done indirect before and they're starting a program, that you know, there's some key elements, just as you know, noted there, to make sure is that you have the right partners, whether that partners be on the software side, uh, on your LOS, um, in terms of what you're utilizing, um, you have the right um, individuals inside the credit that understand indirect auto yeah. um, or can learn about it from other lenders, um, bringing in the right team members. Uh, the most successful programs that we have seen, uh, the individuals on those teams have prior experience either with captive lenders, national banks, other big credit unions that have been successful, those kinds of things. So having the right team in place uh, from that perspective. 
and obviously um, partners, um, yeah. people like, you know, what, what Crip Select provides, for instance, um, on the on the, the relationship management of the dealerships, um, software services, just make sure you have the capacity to handle the volume because the volume can get very large. Yeah. The neat part is every lending size institution now can compete for an auto loan. And the, the beauty of that is everyone can join in the fund, but when you grow that volume um, and you have to be careful how much volume you grow right away for sure, um, you have to have the right things in place to be able to service those loans, to be able to uh, work with the dealers effectively, make sure you're underwriting correctly, don't have a delinquency issues, all the above. So having people monitor that on an ongoing basis and having talking to other individuals that are experts in that space is extremely important. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I know, you know, probably 15 years ago, you know, regulators were very skeptical. You heard about some large losses and some real bad things happening to some credit unions that didn't heed some of the cautions you just went over, you know, maybe let the volume ramp up way too quickly, didn't have the right people on staff to monitor it, all of those things. You know, regulators were pretty, pretty, uh, negative, you know, or giving credit unions, you know, raking them over pretty good, you know, when it came to their exams in the indirect lending space. I think that's in my, my, to my knowledge, that settled down a bit. I think regulators, you know, at least in Michigan, recognize this is just something credit unions are doing and they have a certain checklist, you know, on the indirect side of, of what to have in place. A lot of the things you just mentioned um, in, in your list of, of what a good program is. Is that kind of your experience too, that with credit unions you work with, or the regu- are, are regulators, you know, over-regulating this space or is that kind of mellowed out in your experience, Jeremy? I've seen both, Patty, yeah. over my years. I would say in the last four to five years, I've seen much less of that yeah. happening, unless there was a you know zero loans to thirty million in one month type of situation. Um, they don't really get involved too much as long as the processes are in place. Right. So you know, for instance, one of the things that we work with our lenders on is an operations manual. That operations manual is basically the bible of their program. It shows them, it shows that here's our underwriting rules. This is what we do. Here's what we don't do. Here's how we work with our dealers. Making right. sure that your dealers are audited as well yeah. um, on an annual basis, not just one time. I think that's very important as well. Um, but yeah, I, I'm seeing less of that, Patty. It's, it's it's interesting you bring that up because it used to be, you know, a regular on a regular basis. Yeah, I think there's enough technology, there's enough uh, things out there today that we can monitor things a little closer and, and better. I think that's added to that. Yeah, it just seems to me from you know a lender perspective, almost impossible to expect you know, younger members as credit unions are really trying to reach out and get those younger folks in the door to require somebody to first come to the credit union for a check. You know, I mean, it just seems like it's just a dying, dying on the vine experience that, you know, especially these younger members are just not going to tolerate, you know, they want to go to the dealer and, you know, um, and, and have a seamless, you know, process in place for sure. So, um, you know, the, the dealer part can be tricky, you know, as far as a yearly dealer audit, you know, I know, you know, Criff, as you mentioned, you know, works with credit unions and the dealers and does some of that. I mean, what is, uh, uh, when you say that a credit union should audit a dealership, what should they be looking for? Sure. You know, there's, there's things uh, such as on the independent side, specifically, you can get in their financials every year. 
Yeah. Uh, but there's also, you know, Dun & Bradstreet reports. We, we use a, a scoring mechanism with them that looks for everything from how many complaints, uh, lawsuits, potential, um, all the things that are, that are at risk uh, from a dealership perspective. It looks at those and then scores them. We're pretty we're pretty picky on which dealers can be added yeah. onto our program, specifically on the independent side. So the dealers that are on our program are, are very strong financially and have showed a lot of years of, of business. Uh, but it's a constant thing, and especially your top 10 to 15 dealers that you do business with. I think not only relying on what Crift does for them, for instance, for our partners, but also doing it yourself to kind of really understand, make sure you're doing business uh, with the right partners because it's yeah. it can be get very large. I mean, the volume of, of of deals a dealer can give a credit union can get very large in a real quick hurry. So it's important that not only for the purposes of the portfolio, but also for the the member experience when they're going to that dealer that they're being treated right. They're not being oversold. They're they're doing the right things to partner with them. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you, what do you think the future of indirect lending is, Jeremy? Like if you were to forecast out 10 to 20 years, where do you think it's heading and, and where do you think it needs to kind of evolve from where it is now? Um, I think it's it's not going anywhere. I would say this, it's going to be further upstream. So yeah. I think the future of indirect lending is going to be more when that person is on their iPhone buying a car, believe it or not, and things of that nature and that financing. Now there's tools in place from a technology perspective that the dealers work with and the lenders can get access to that can actually do the car deal virtually um, in terms of the, on the financing side. Uh, it used to be where it, it was a, well, you're, it's going to be around this, you know, this range to this range of your payment and then all the, no, they can literally get it to the cent now if, if they're doing things correctly. So further upstream, making a better overall consumer and then for the creating perspective, a member experience yeah. Um, and getting the financing at the touch of a button, kind of like open banking, if you will, is um, I think that's the key is to continue to evolve to make and thinking the end consumer the whole time to make that experience better, because that will always win in my perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as we're kind of wrapping up, Jeremy, anything in, in your world in the indirect space that I didn't ask you that's kind of a hot topic or something that you think we should be talking about? <laughs> no, I think it was pretty, it was pretty uh, well-rounded. I would say I that um, you know, inventory was a big thing during COVID. There's yeah. still inventory out there. There's still some shortcomings in some perspectives. It'll be interesting to see the next, um, you know, four to six months, what happens there and pricing of vehicles and how that you know, occurs. Yeah. Um, and also the liquidity. I mean, you, you, we talked about that, you know, briefly as well. What does that mean for credit unions in the next six months to a year? And when does yeah. that change? So um, I think those are the big topics in today's environment, and right. uh, I appreciate the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jeremy, I do want to spend a little time getting to know you a little bit better because you're out. Uh -oh. <laughs> I know you You join us at a lot of our Michigan events and people are are meeting and get to know you and your team. And, um, you, you know, you do a lot around the country, but um, let's let's have a little fun. And I'm going to ask you the questions that I ask everybody. So okay. in there. Um, so, Jeremy, tell us what's on your nightstand at home. I've got two pictures. One of them is my parents and the other one is my wife and myself. And I put those, I put those there specifically because my parents have been married for over 50 years and are a good example. And then of course my wife and I've been married over 20 years. So it's a, it's a reminder to me all the time of what's important. That's so cool. Yeah. My parents have been married, I think over 55 years now. Nice. So that's Really impressive. Um, okay. That's really nice. So what is something that people get wrong about you, Jeremy? Well, 
Um, some of it's my fault, but um, <laughs> everyone thinks of me as a big sports fanatic, which I am. I absolutely okay. love sports, um, okay. but I'm also very much uh, into the arts. So okay. I love orchestra, choir, uh, you know, um, Broadway, uh, listening to those music. And I also enjoy it very much. You know, it was a big part of my life and earlier in my in my life in high school, things of that nature. So I just think it's something that um, people just think I'm I'm one just sports guy, but I'm not. <laughs> so were you in band or like in, in uh, all state choir? I was more on the on the choir side. Yeah, really, yeah. that's interesting. So, what are some cool Broadway shows that you're loving right now? You know, I it's been very busy, Patty. I haven't been. Yeah. I mean, I've been to Wicked <laughs> before, obviously, and some of the major ones I've been to. I haven't went enough as of late. Yeah, but uh, yeah. there I, when I when I do go, it's it's amazing, and I've taken two of my different children to them and, and Broadway, and it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I just saw um, Six came through Detroit, which is, nice. you know, I, it was a good one. I, I recommend that. It was a lot of fun about Henry VIII's wives. It was it was very cool. You you probably like it's a musical. So, yes. um, all right. Good. Good to know. Um, OK, so if you could have coffee with anyone, who would it be and why? No doubt. Uh, Tim Tebow. Um, <laughs> as I said, I am a, I'm a big football fan, but okay. the amazing part to me about him is all the things he's able to do outside of football, yeah. um, from his, uh, you know, he helps kids all over the world. Um, he's got so much energy and I just, I would love to a half an hour with this, with, with him to, to just pick his brain on how he gets that energy and how he <laughs> continues to strive towards all the things that he does so successfully and be, and be so uh, enduring and, and it's, it's amazing to me. So he would be the person. All right. Very cool. All right. So I know you travel a bit, but what's a bucket list travel destination that's on the list of somewhere you have to go at some point? Africa. So ah. I've not, I've not been to South Africa or even Africa in general, but I've, I've had a lot of uh, friends lately that I've been talking to that have been to Africa. And I so much want to go there for the animals, the people, the landscapes, just uh, spend a couple of weeks in a safari. Uh, that's that's really where I want to go to next. I've been very fortunate, as you said, to travel all over Europe and yeah, and Asia and all over with the our global organization. But I've not been down there yet, and I really want to go. Yeah, nice. Well, let me know if you start to plan because I have a couple good contacts over there. Depending on where you end up, will do. Um, okay, very cool. So last but not least, um, what do you think, Jeremy, you know, as as the president and CEO of CRIF, you know, um, being a leader, what do you think is a trader quality that every leader should strive for? Humility and self-awareness, for sure. I think understanding um, the things that you do well, and, and, and more importantly, the things that you maybe need some help with or have opportunities with is extremely important. Um, I just got my executive MBA, and that's the one of the things that I learned during that process is, is especially being with peers that were not even in my industry, things of that nature, is understanding the things that you need to work on and having the people to help you do that. But but understanding and not trying to cover it up, but just right. taking it head on and saying, listen, I don't do well with marketing, for instance. I need help with this. How do we together get this thing, these things done? And working with other individuals to do that and being very open about it, I think it's the most important thing in successful leadership. That's awesome. And I think so many leaders that I talk to are are kind of commenting similar to that, Jeremy, in that I think 
you know, we're kind of pushing past the old school mentality that just because you run the place, you need to know everything and, and not admitting when you don't. And I think I'm so glad to see that we're getting rid of that because it's not true. No one can know everything. And I think there was this pressure on, on leaders to, to, to not be, you know, not have to ask questions or to feel weird asking a question of, gee, I run the place. I should know the answer to this. And (laughs) I love that we're kind of all agreeing collectively. No, we can, we cannot know. And it's it's better when we're not the smartest person in the room and we want to build a team that brings, you know, brings up our weaknesses and, and takes care of those for us. And I love that we can kind of talk like that now. And I, I'm I'm thrilled because I'm the first one to admit that <laughs> there's a lot of questions I have. And, you know, you don't want to be afraid to ask those questions, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? It also it gives you the opportunity to hear from some of your team members that if you you knew everything and didn't want didn't need their help on anything and you would lose out on so much information and great ideas from them. So I think that goes along with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Jeremy, it's been really fun talking to you. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. I look forward to seeing you in Michigan at some point down the road. Um, and and thanks for sharing your expertise with our, our crew. Um, I know we have a lot of people that listen, and I'm sure we're going to have more lenders listen to this one, considering the the topic and and definitely pick up some nuggets from, from some of your experience in the industry. And um, if anybody does want to reach out to you um, or to Criff, you know, they know they can reach out to me and I'll connect you. Um, But it's been great having you on. I appreciate the time this morning. Likewise, Patty. Thanks so much and appreciate all you do as well in the creative industry. So thank you. Thanks, Jeremy. Have a good one. You too. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. And thanks again to Jeremy. I thought that was a great episode. I really appreciated learning more myself about indirect lending space, you know, touching on not only indirect lending, but touching a little bit on um, auto renting or, you know, renting vehicles and how that's changing, hitting on, you know, who are some of the disruptors to our traditional indirect lending experience, you know, Carvana and what's that, what's that's doing to the industry. And certainly Jeremy's perspective on technology and and the digital and and what credit unions really need to do and think about as they put together a good indirect lending program. So lots of great nuggets here. Um, Hopefully you enjoyed the episode as much as I did getting to know not only um, Jeremy, but uh, what he does at CRIP, what they offer, and also, you know, just learning more about what credit unions are seeing as they navigate, you know, these rates and um, liquidity issues, delinquency issues and things like that. So So um, thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode and I will catch you soon.